This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Ken Hao Lin and Megan Tobias Neely, the authors of Divested, Inequality in the Age of Finance, out in 2020 from Oxford University Press. And a short bit on the book, uh, Divested explores the rise of finance in American life over the last 40 years and its implication for American workers, families, and economies. The authors argue that finance has transformed from a servant to the economy to its master from a means of creating a prosperous society to an end in itself. And the consequences of this shift are profound, the authors show. They identify the many ways finance has, has driven the yawning growth and inequality in the U.S. by redistributing resources from working people to owners, executives, and financial professionals. And they use historical analysis, quantitative and qualitative data together to offer a clear, comprehensive, compelling account of one of the most important economic developments of our time. Uh, Megan Tobias Neely is currently a postdoctoral scholar at the Women's Leadership Innovation Lab at Stanford University and an incoming assistant professor in the Department of Organization at Copenhagen Business School. Ken Howlin is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. Ken, Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. Uh, the first time I really heard or thought about finance was in the wake of the crash, and I remember reading something that was in Rolling Stone by Matt Taibbi, and I looked it up, and which he called Goldman Sachs, and by proxy kind of all of fan finance, quote, a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, unquote. Um, and I think a, a number of people, at least my age, this was their first introduction to what finance is, a vampire squid. I'm wondering if you could start by uh, working us backwards and maybe helping people with, can you tell us first, what's the role finance could or should play uh, in a healthy economy or society. Okay, so I'll go first. Um, actually, Patrick, I would say that I also read exact same article when I was in graduate school. And uh, and when I was in graduate school, it was also the time that the Occupy Wall Street is going on. And one thing I find fascinating is that the metaphor is so strong, you know, the vampire squid, a lot of people actually don't know what exactly finance is about and how exactly can we describe the, you know, all these big banks as vampire squid. So for this book, we're actually trying to sort of break down and look into what actually finance is doing right now in the United States. And this is also not a book that's about finance is bad, but certain types of finance is bad. And we think finance can do a lot 
for societies. And in the book, we talk about the finance. Uh, money has four functions for societies. So the first one is clearly the payment system. So every day, I don't know about you, Patrick, do you bring cash with you? Not much anymore. Yeah, so these days, actually, a colleague of mine, she just brings her phone and a credit card and a driver's license. So the first thing that finance is obviously doing and we're using every day is we use finance to facilitate payments. And the second thing, and this is probably also what we learn in schools when people talk about banks, like what finance does is that it's mobilized the capitals we're not using to places it can be used. So uh, I think the famous movies in the U.S. is it's the wonderful it's a wonderful world. Have you guys all seen this? Yeah, love that one. Yeah, I have not seen it. Really, Patrick? Okay. So I know some families is like their like Christmas movie. They watch it every year. So you know what banks does is that we put money we are not using right now. Uh, in a bank and they move the money to places they lend it out to people who want to buy houses, they lend it out to people who want to open a business and so those money can be used to do something productive. And the third one is that the finance help us to manage our personal or family resources, right? So for example, uh, at the beginning of our career, we may want to buy a house, but we don't have enough money to do so. So we can supposedly take our loan to either buy a house, open a business, and over time, as we make money, we can pay off that loan. So instead of waiting until offers are in our 50s and 60s, we are able to, uh, in some way, borrow from the future to do something productive in our life. And I think the last one that's coming in now is finance supposedly can help us manage risk. So, you know, the common example is insurance, right? So all of us, if we all pay into a, a, sm- a pool of money, if any of us have health issues or have a car accident, we can take money out of that pool to deal with those uh, incidents that personally we may not be able to afford. So these are the main functions that finance plays in our society. Megan, do you have anything you want to add? I think that covers all the, uh, I mean, kind of the key parts of how it it really does make our lives so much more convenient. It can really create um, exchanges among people, make them so much smoother. But it's just that what happens is it gets so much more complex from there. Um, and, And that's kind of what we examine in the book in detail. And how that shifts money um, away it can actually then shift money away from those basic transactions and facilitate making them easier for everyone involved to making them much more complex and obtuse uh, to the benefit of financial investors. Yeah, exactly. I think like Megan just said that you know we're actually using finance every day and at different stages of our life, but the process is not very visible to us. We kind of know it as very passive users and whenever we give the banks our money whenever we're using the credit card we actually very rarely get to know actually the inner working of finance so for this book you know we're trying to actually show uh the readers like okay this is how money is flowing around 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, and that part of the book was very helpful for, for me, who first came upon finance as a vampire squid, um, to understand kind of the helpful functions of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you spend a good amount of time in the books saying that the U.S. has become, quote, what you say, financialized. And like I mentioned in the introduction, you sort of define that as, as finance moving from being a servant to a master of the economy. I wonder if you can walk us through what you mean by that and sort of what were the main mechanisms through which we've become quote, financialized? Yeah, and that's a, a great question. So I think I, what that and what kind of gets at the heart of this is how finance has shifted. So in theory, it should create smooth functioning. It should help people deal with risk and uncertainty. So much of it is designed to mitigate risk in theory. But what's happened with, um, as finance has become this principal driver of society, it now has these very complex calculative and derivative logics that have like subsumed all parts of our, our lives. So those financial products we rely on on an everyday basis, many of them are almost deliberately, um, in many ways, too difficult to understand. Um, and some of the, the investments that happened on a broader scale that maybe stem from our 401ks or our pension funds or our university endowments are then invested in ways that are so complex that sometimes even the people engage, you know, investing in them, the institutions putting their money in them can't fully understand it. And that creates all these problems. Um, so this is first that expansion of those um, financial logics that don't make sense to many people um, in everyday practice into all er- facets of our lives. Um, and then how the second key kind of piece of this is how in doing so, financial services really draws income away from consumers and revenue um, and to um, or draw, draws income away from consumers and creating revenue um, and the and away from those producers and merchants of those services and this is um, in that by doing so so these very like sophisticated and complex financial investments then extract this these resources and wealth and it don't necessarily always consider the long-term consequences. So why they may be designed to mitigate and distribute risks, for example, um, in many uh, um, investment techniques, kind of parcel out assets and create them into these, these um, uh, uh, vague and obtuse products that are meant to make it so that everybody invests in the risks and shares in the risks. But what this does is it creates these big systemic risks in society. Um, and so um, as a product of this, we see these shifts um, in crisis in the market um, that are happening at an increasingly prevalent rate over the last hundred years. And that creates more uncertainty for you know, the average American family and more kind of precarious and mistrust rather than um, alleviating the risks they face in their lives. May I ask uh, something that was very helpful for me when you're describing the financialization of, of the U.S. economy was the distinction between the finance sector itself growing in, in size and productivity and political power, and then also how even non-financial firms develop sort of financial arms and, and finance becomes a bigger part of their, um, their economies. Could you, could you help talk me through each of those, um, how each of those develop? Yeah, so I agree with uh, what Megan just said. And of course, you know, coming from academia, we have a very formal definition of what we mean by the rise of finance or financialization in the book. Uh, but I want us maybe for now to think about some experiences we have, you know, as just everyday consumers. I will share one I had a couple years ago that I was looking to buy 
a new car and I picked the car. I Googled to figure out how to negotiate with the salesperson and everything. Eventually, I settled down on the car and I was trying to negotiate for a better price. And at that point, that the salesman tells me that, you know what, we can offer you $500 off if you take up a loan for this car. And to be clear, I think maybe coming from Taiwan, like my plan was actually just buy the car with cash. I save up, you know, you know, for a few years for this, I'm ready to buy it. So I was kind of shocked that I can get a discount if I take up a loan. And so I did take up the loans and I paid off as soon as I can. I think a minimum, you cannot pay it off right away. You have to pay at least like, in three installments. That's what I did. But I kept thinking, like, why exactly they want me to take up a loan to give me a discount? If anything, wouldn't it increase their risk? What if I don't pay off my loan? Right? It doesn't make any sense at all. But I can see that from a bigger picture, they are actually counting on that there will be enough people either not paying off their loan or paying off their loan late, that's at the at the average, they will make more than $500. And I think this is just an example to show that how all these big companies, no matter whether it's car companies, or we can think about something trendier, such as Apple, Apple Car, as was, I think, just released last year. Now, any of you have Apple Cards? Not yet. Right. Not yet. You're thinking about getting one. I heard it's like pretty fancy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think this is just an example to me that illustrates how, you know, the U.S. economy is now financialized. And the sense of that now we're no longer selling you apps, we're no longer selling you electronic device, we're now no, no longer selling you cars, we're thinking about you know, how exactly can we use financial products and how we sell our, you know, sell financial products along with other products. Another example I think a lot of people can relate to is when they either go on an airplane or go to Target. Have you been sold credit cards in those places? Yes, and Macy's and Macy's and everywhere. And, and so... I think all these are, you know, places that we just sort of ignore. We just uh, say either yes or no to the credit card. We either we say yes or no to those supposedly additional miles we can get when we sign up a credit card. But I think those are all representing uh, a bigger picture of, you know, in the U.S., no matter whether it's the finance sectors or the non-finance sectors, the financial product has been or activities has been a main uh, channel for all these companies to generate revenue. So sorry for a little bit of digression. So coming back to uh, Patrick's questions. So maybe Megan, you will talk about like, you know, how things unfold in the financial sectors and I can talk a little bit more about how things unfold in the non-financial sectors. Yeah. So within the financial sector, I mean, what's really happened is just with the deregulation of finance um, over the past 40 years, we've seen the development of all these new kind of proliferation of new financial 
vehicles um, that such as like derivatives tradings or should invest in um, in in futures and um, and the idea that stocks will grow or or decline at a given point in time. Um, and then with those, as well as the rise of a number of um, investments in things like insurance contracts. So you can actually invest in whether, you know, get take out an insurance policy on whether you think a stock will do uh, improve or or fall over time um, and, and invest against those insurance policies. And so there's been this, this whole chain or kind of web of, of different investment activities that has enabled um, financial services firms to scale, you know, to expand their investments on a scale we've just never seen before in any point in history, um, and 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 it's created a financial sector that's increasingly complex, and this happens on a transnational scale. So it's investments abroad, where and we've gotten to the point where, as we saw in the financial crisis of two thousand eight, many of these um, financial players involved don't even know or understand the scope um, with which their investments are impacted impacted by one another. Um, and are impacted by great shifts in in the the market. Um, so it is that, and this has largely been facilitated by the advent of new technologies that allow you to do these kind of quantitative and algorithmic tradings um, that that ex, um, you know exploit or or kind of um, reap the benefits of huge price movements in the stock market. So that's that's the primary avenue through which like the financial sector has has kind of exploded, and then all these new financial services um, companies. Have emerged to help to provide investors with new avenues to put their their resources and to make the most of it. And then at the same time, which I think Kendra is going to elaborate on, we've seen uh, non financial corporations also um, enter into this whole foray of of these complex investments, and that's had a big impact for for workers in those for, firms. Yeah, so like Megan just said, and like the examples I just talked about, as we think about the rise of financing non-financial corporations in two ways. The first way, just like we mentioned, is that more and more non-financial companies, maybe in technology, maybe in retails, are thinking about ways to profit from finance. And in the 2000s, actually, a lot of big companies, such as G and GM, they are making more money from finance. Actually, their core business. The second way, and I think this is potentially the linking the two pieces together, is how all these non-financial companies are run. Uh, started to starting to think like banks. Starting to think like you know all these hedge funds in the financial sectors. So instead of you know, figuring out how they increase their market share in the consumer market, they start to think about their company as a stock and how they can sell by different companies or different units in the companies to increase the value of their stock. And this leads to a lot of problems, such as in the 90s, we see a massive layout. And even now, we have all the precarious employment and these employments uh, conditions that are a result of companies trying to maintain their stock price. And so for a lot of CEOs these days, that's, you know, their key clients are no longer the consumers of their product, but they are thinking about the stockholders. They are thinking about the investors. They are thinking about how 
you know, each of their decisions will influence the stock price. And it's less about, you know, overall whether the consumers are truly happy with their products. And of course, you will find people argue that these are these two are linked. So there's definitely a shift in terms of orientation. Another key argument we want to make in the book is that in theory, finance shouldn't be so profitable or should be less profitable than before. And this is because there's a huge technological change that's happened in the past three or four decades. Back in the days when you run financial services, it involves a lot of human labor. If you want to cash check, if you want to, you know, move monies, a lot of time there's involved all this real work of people have to do these things. But with computers, with all the electronic technology, supposedly, you know, all these costs should be going down. And, you know, some of the financial economists actually have looked into it and they find that, you know, it's indeed very strange that finance is so profitable that, uh, you know, all the increase in profitability in finance in financial sectors and the financial activities in non-financial sec- sectors are not driven by uh, efficiencies, but by driven are driven by quantities of process. And so Megan and I, we both look into kind of how, what kind of mechanisms is creating high profitability for financial activities. And one thing I wanted to kind of um, reiterate on that point that's come up in the news a lot lately is... Uh, what, so one of the things that uh, allows for the, these really high incomes, uh, especially among those who do the investments themselves, are that they, they measure their gains in the short term. So it's, there's this big emphasis on quarterly or even monthly uh, reporting of financial returns, and then the income is, uh, is tied to that. So they, you, know, you can spark a huge um, you know, um, investment return really quickly that might not actually create, you know, economic growth in the long term or not be sustainable in the long term, but still get this big payout um, in the form of, of an incentive um, pay or a bonus. But one thing that's come about lately is even big financial investors like Warren Buffett have really questioned this pro- practice and said, maybe we need to move to a model where corporations don't report their gains on a on a quarterly scale because we need to incentivize these investors to do long-term investments that pay off over time and create, you know, sustainable growth for everyone. Um, so it is partly that, you know, um, that instantaneous pursuit of profit that's enabled by and kind of amplified through technologies that then allows these exorbitant incomes that often defy any sort of rational um, economic model of how, of how value or pay is determined. I mean, for example, you know, leading financial CEOs and a lot of hedge fund managers, what they make, it doesn't, it goes beyond what we can rationalize as a, as a product of productivity or efficiency. It's just exponentially higher than that. And it's because of the short-term focus. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The, the book is a lot about inequality. And one thing you mentioned sort of in the meat of the book is that 
there were or are theories um, that the growth in finance is actually going to be able to alleviate inequalities that at least in the examples Ken gave, you know, if we loosen up credit, uh, Macy's or your airline gives you a credit card so you can access something more valuable early on. Somehow the loosening of credit is going to uh, sort of democratize money in some way and help alleviate inequalities. Could you first help me with what the theory exactly is there? Um, and then maybe walk me through if and how that looks uh, in your research, if that proves to be true. Well, I, as far as I know, I do not think there is a formal theory about uh, why increasing uh, credit would reduce inequality. However, if you look into history and, you know, we look into a part of the history, but there are also books. Let's look into uh, the U.S. in the 19th centuries and early 20th centuries. I think it's more so uh, sort of post hoc practice in the sense that they realize that a lot of people are in economic hardship and they want to borrow. And often they have a problem to borrow or when they borrow, they are facing extremely high interest rates. So since late 19th centuries, the U.S. government has been supporting you know, the expansion of credit. On the one hand, they want, you know, consumers who are having problem affording goods can purchase the goods they need, and supposedly that will address some of the economic hardship. On the other hand, they want to uh, stimulate the production or want to deal with the problem when there is overproduction, that those goods can be actually sold to the public. And even though I couldn't identify a formal theory, this has been a practice, this has been how people talked about credit the whole time. You know, to be clear that the access to credit, there has always been a huge racial disparity. As we know, that black and minority households always have more problem getting the credit they need to purchase the home they want to live in, even though they may have very stable jobs and you know, very substantial incomes. So yes, it's true that there's racial disparity in terms of access to credit, and that's something should be corrected. But I think there's a spillover to how people in general think about the relationship between credit and inequality. And Megan, maybe you can talk about like you know what we're finding in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I one thing I mean I that we've always thought is particularly kind of fascinating or sort of a like puzzle here is that all the more recent research on financialization has shown how the rise of finance and the you know expansion of credit has really created all these labor issues. So it's helped to um, kind of destabilize unions and prevent them from organizing and it's created inequalities among workers. But initially access to credit for households, what came about out of the progressive reformist movement um, and the labor rights movement, who just want, who saw credit as this way to help working um, average working class families get ahead or or um, subsist when they didn't have access to this beforehand, and it was really also further um, promoted within the um, civil rights movement and the feminist movement in the late 1960s and 70s because uh, you know uh, racial and ethnic minority families have been denied access to credit and, and in many cases are still being denied access to credit and at higher rates. 
Um, and this has been true for women as well and single women. And so it was really emerged as a kind of anti-racism and, and feminist issue to give people access to credit and that this would be the great equal, um, you know, uh, lever in society, leveler in society to make things more equal. But what we find is that it's actually these very groups that continue to get pay more um, on their debt. They're charged higher interest rates. Um, they don't, and they, and they often are um, still have struggled to access credit um, overall. So even though it was the goal of of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement to make, and the labor rights movement to make access to credit more equal, it's had these unintended um, consequences in terms of making it a higher burden on them and actually extracting resources from these very groups and putting in them in the hands of the the, the financial investors who. Um, invest or to lend them this money and charge these interest rates. And now that we're, you know, a few decades into this process of financialization, a good part of the book deals with what are, what you see so far as the consequences in terms of the wealth and debt of American families. Can you walk us through some of the most important sort of points to pull out of what effect this has had on, on American workers and inequality in the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, when I think, and this is what Ken was alluding to, like some of the main takeaways that we really find is that, so there's this notion that like access to debt is this big issue that's facing that, you know, working class um, families and the poor just can't manage their debt and that they're highly indebted. But we actually find this isn't true. They don't largely can't, still can't access credit. Um, um, and they don't hold as much debt as wealthier families and middle-class families and so what we find is that families in the top 10% um, top 10th of the income distribution incur more than half of the household debt in the United States. So they're holding the majority of debt and it's actually sort of a for them it's part of a financial portfolio um, of resources that they can leverage. So they might take out student debt which is they pay very low interest rate on and then instead invest their money in higher um, return vehicles and so it's kind of a debt management technique that actually further embed, um, um, you know, enriches these families and allows them to amass wealth at the top. Whereas we find the bottom 10, 20% of American families receive at most 5% of all household loans. They really aren't getting much, um, much access to credit. And, this, um, and because of structural uh, racism, uh, these families are more likely to be, or low, um, racial and ethnic minority families are more likely to be worse off um, and have less access to credit and are largely excluded from the credit market um, among these low earners. Yeah, so to follow up on that, I think it's, uh, you know, we can think about the more concrete example of student debt. So student debt is obviously an example of how credit was, you know, Consider as a way to address the issue of inequality. Some of the kids are coming from well-off families, as you know. Supposedly, the parents can pay tuitions, boardings, and everything, and some kids are not as lucky. So, what should we do? What we can do is that we can offer credits to kids who cannot go to college, and then supposedly now we're equalizing the opportunities between you know two groups of kids. And now we're living in the consequence of this kind of policy, this kind of thinking that credit can address inequality. What we're seeing now is that, you know, 
uh, young people who are graduating with a lot of student debts are realizing that, you know, they may not be able to afford it, or if they keep paying student debt, they may not be able to start the life they are looking for. And so we, the gap between the rich kids and the poor kids are only temporarily raised as they are now growing up to be adults starting their career. We see a huge divergence in terms of what they will be doing, you know, in their careers, you know, Studies have shown that uh, people with heavy student debts are less likely to purchase a home. They are less likely to get married. And, you know, they are, of course, not accumulating wealth because a lot of their incomes are going to repayment. So this is one very concrete example of how, you know, at some point or from some perspective that's giving people credit makes sense. But uh, our research is showing that now it's not actually addressing the issue of inequality, if anything, because of all the interest and the repayment people with debt are paying, they actually are worse off rather than better off. And I was always surprised to uh, when we learned that, you know, the those with the, the most student debt really are, and it makes uh, intuitive sense once you think about it, but it's really doctors and lawyers, and those are people from class generally um, are more likely to be from class privileged backgrounds. And so they feel comfortable taking out that much debt um, and then it benefits them. And it's those with a higher debt burden who take out these little student, smaller student loans, like 500 to $2,500 are the most likely to actually default on those um, because they're just so they're struggling so much to make ends meet. Yeah. And that's one key distinction we we're trying to make in the book is to think about debt and debt burden separately. So debt is uh, the exact dollar amount you are owing. And but that burden has a more contextual meaning. It's that, you know, for the same amount of debt, it could mean very different debt burden for different people. And what we're seeing is that people of a lower socioeconomic status, they often do not have a lot of debt. So they often face very heavy debt burden. That's really helpful. I, I, very helpful distinctions I found in the book of just how credit and debt falls on different groups of people in the U.S. It's, I, I've in the past thought of it too simply as something you have access to or don't, but the way it can shape different people's life courses based on the debt burden is a really helpful uh, distinction. I want to move to uh, a little bit on the crash. You know, people have heard a ton of autopsies of 2007, 2008. And in the book, you cover it a bit. But um, being a sort of decade out, you can provide some perspective on the sort of political and policy responses uh, to the crash. Um, and you say that the political response has done more to restore than reform the role of finance in the economy. Could you tell us, you know, without giving us too much on the crash itself, I think we've heard uh, a, a lot of that. What have what has the response been? What um, has changed or has not changed policy wise to rein in finance or change its role uh, in the economy? Well, so I think uh, our take in the book, and I don't believe this is a controversial take at all, is that the policy response, you know, during the crisis and especially during the recession, has been how we can go back to where we were before. I think people in general, or as 
especially policymakers in general, do not think there is a structural issue with the financial sectors beyond in uh, this is too linked and too risky. There are too many big banks control too much of the economy, and that's mostly dominate the thinking policymakers have. So you can see a lot of policy discussion at the time is really thinking about how we can reduce the risk in general, but maintain the systems. So have the original system in place. Now we're just going to put more seatbelt on. We're going to put more cushions on. So if something happens, we won't have a serious crash. But there is not a fundamental discussion on whether the financial system itself is flawed. And so if you look into specific policies, of course, there's, we should have more consumer protections. Of course, now banks shouldn't over leverage. We should have more reserve. So in case something unexpected happened, we won't get into the same situations. And what the contrast we're trying to make in the book is that this kind of policy response is drastically different from what happened during the Great uh, during the Great Depression. At that time, that the financial sectors was also very linked, was also very risky, and what they did at that time in terms of policy reform is to think about how exactly can we reshape the financial systems to build more firewalls to make sure that no company has extreme political power that they can influence regulations and to compartmentalize. So any crisis will not get spread all over the world. So uh, in our assessment of the policy response, we look into how exactly you know, inequality changed due to the quote-unquote financial reform. And what we're seeing in the data is that because there's no fundamental change in our financial system, the financial sector is actually very quickly becoming more profitable uh, than uh, after the crisis than before. So uh, the takeaway for us is that, yes, we had a tremendous and to some degree traumatic crisis, but the administration at that time did not actually attempt to fundamentally reform the system. What they do is they add more padding to it. And, and about that padding, uh, how much is that going to help? Is that going to forestall crises in the future? Is it, is it hopefully going to lessen the impact of them or the reach of them? What's your assessment of, of the reforms that have been done, um, how they will shape sort of our relationship to finance moving forward? Do we expect to have crises like like we've had in the past, or will this flatten them out? Megan, do you want to go? Yeah, I think. I mean, what for one? Well, there's there's two kind of pieces to that. I mean, what we looked at. Um, <clears throat> so the one thing, it, the response, the regulatory response has helped to address some of the. Um, the the issues in terms of systemic risk, um, although arguably perhaps not enough, and in, in terms of and in terms of keeping it 
um, those reforms from being scaled back um, during the current administration haven't been effective enough. But what we what we really have shifted the attention to is just thinking about how that response on uh, in the future will not only um, will not necessarily alleviate these recurring financial crises, but that what we think is more important is how they also won't ensure that um, inequality doesn't persist. So they kind of keep approach uh, inequality as like a fundamental part of our society and don't think about how the reforms should have addressed those inequalities. And this is kind of uh, especially apparent in two ways based on the the fallout from the crisis. So one thing, as Ken was saying, you know, the stock market really rebounded and it rebounded much quicker than your average U.S. household. So, you know, it fully recovered by 2013. um, But at the same time, we still had a high unemployment rate and high single-family mortgage delinquency rates. So people were still defaulting on their mortgage. Um, and the typical American family law, law owned like 30% less than they did in 2007 um, before the crisis. And this is largely because what, and this it really exacerbated inequality in two ways. So for one, the wealthiest families are inv- more likely to be invested in financial products. Um, uh, products. So, and by wealthiest families, I even mean the top ten, um, you know, ten percent of families and the top twenty-five percent of families are more likely to be, and even the the middle class to some extent. Um, but when we get to the middle, middle class and working class families, they're more likely to be invested in in home ownership, um, and they are still, uh, in many ways, at risk for that that home ownership wealth to be compromised when there's financial crises and, and downturns, although we've, we've made more protections there, they're still um, more vulnerable. And this has especially a bigger um, burden on racial and ethnic minority families who are more likely to have their, their wealth residing in their homes. And then, and for this reason encountered some of the most kind of the greatest hardships during the financial crisis because of the fallout. So while, you know, the regulatory changes can do more um, to protect financial institutions within the financial sector. They're not, it's not fully, um, it hasn't fully addressed the fact that the, when we have these leaps and bounds in the stock markets or we have crises that come up, those who are the wealthiest or the best, most class privileged will be able to um, bounce back because they're invested in the stock market. And that's what uh, is addressed in the response and can recover quickly. But it's really people, um, more average families, who are going to be the most hardest hit going up forward, and we need to do more to protect them. Yeah, so like uh, what Megan just said, that in the book, we are trying to make into us a very important distinction in terms of what kind of social problem the finance sectors you know, may, might create. And we think that the one that capture people's attention is a very short-term acute financial crisis like the one we just experienced, you know, 10 years ago. And we're arguing that there is a different type of problem that finance is creating and has been creating for many years. And it is a transfer of economic resources from the poor to the rich. And... I feel we always, and you know, understandably so, we always pay so much more attention on the first time the pro- first type of problem the finance creates, but we don't pay that much attention to the second type of problem, the link between finance and inequalities. 
in the U.S. And it's mostly just because it's not as visible and it's not as accurate, but it's equally uh, consequential in our opinion. I want to ask uh, one question that comes out of the conclusion of the book, something that you put in there that I found really uh, compelling was um, you reference a finding in psychology from the 1960s, I think, that has been called the, quote, just world hypothesis. And then sort of you use this to sort of frame both of your orientations towards this work and what you're trying to do in getting this research out to the public. Would you tell me about the, the just world hypothesis, maybe briefly where it comes from, and then how you see your role as social scientist, uh, how you position yourself around that? So I find the just war hypothesis to be very fascinating because I think it's in many ways very intuitive. So this is a just war hypothesis is a pretty popular concept in psychology. And the basic idea here is that people as human in general, we tend to believe the world is just. So we like to think that everything happens for reasons. We like to think that you know people get what they deserve, and this is we have a very strong need to hold this belief, either explicitly or implicitly. And as such, often when we see some sort of social phenomena, we have this strong urge no matter voluntarily or involuntarily to try to understand it, but more often than not, we're trying to rationalize it. And the reason we are bringing these ideas to our thinking of inequality is that we see a lot of thinking like this when people think about societal inequality in general or when people think about how you know, a certain individual is compensated. So recently, I'm currently teaching this inequality seminar at UT, and there is a contrast I find super fascinating that's related to uh, this idea, is that I ask all the graduate students in the seminar whether they believe, uh, you know, people are making more money because they have something special about them. Either they are more productive or they have more powers. And in general, at the abstract level, students all think that, you know, there is a very weak link between productivity and how much one person is compensated. And then I shifted to individual cases. I asked them to think about sort of specific faculty member at LBJ school, for example, because we have a student from LBJ. I asked her, like, okay, this is the person who's making the most money at LBJ policy schools. Why is that the case? And very quickly, she gave me a lot of uh, explanation related to productivity. So. As you know, as humans, we live our life. We're trying to make sense of things, and we want to believe that the world we're living in—it could be academia, it could be at the workplace—things worked out for a reason. And the book, and we're writing this book, trying to show that this kind of thinking is fundamentally problematic because often we don't actually know why economic resources is distributed in certain ways and often 
we like to use the individual explanations about why people receive certain income. That sounds fair to us because we live our life. We wish that more productive workers will be compensated better. We wish people who are more talented will be compensated better. So we mistaken the just world we want to live in to the real world we are, and the book is trying to show that you know the inequality we are seeing in the past decades cannot be thought as simply as we wish, and so that's mostly why we are bringing the concept. Into the concluding chapter of the book. Great.、Um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, so I think we're going to leave it there.、Um, I want to thank Ken Howlin and Megan Tobias Neely for coming on the show.、Um, they're the authors of "Divested: Inequality in the Age of Finance," out、uh, in 2020 from University、uh, Oxford University Press.、Uh, Ken, Megan, thanks again for for coming on and talking to us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank、Patrick. you. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.